When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the link to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me, Michael Adams, in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respect to Aboriginal elders, past and present. It's 5.30 on the afternoon of Friday the 23rd of October 1863, and in the Beechworth Court, a jury of 12 men has just found Betsy Scott, David Gedge and Julian Cross guilty, guilty, guilty of the shooting murder of her husband, Bob Scott. Chief Justice William Stahl, up from Melbourne for this circuit court, addresses the prisoners. He tells them that he concurs with the jury. They are guilty. The cases of the three will now go before the Governor and the Executive Council for review. But His Honour can hold out no hope to them whatsoever of a reprieve. Chief Justice Stahl will not be recommending mercy. He then sentences Betsy, David and Julian to death to hang by their necks until they are dead and may God have mercy on their souls. I'm Michael Adams, this is Forgotten Australia and you're listening to Murder at Devil's River Part 3, Australia's first femme fatale. Hangings were not yet carried out at Beechworth Jail. A gallows wouldn't be built there for a few years yet. So the prisoners would have to be transferred to Melbourne Jail to face their fates. Melbourne Jail didn't yet have the gallows built into the platform that now forms a tourist attraction. Instead, in 1863, the scaffold was at one end of the long central corridor, the fatal platform accessed by narrow steps, the rope affixed to a beam overhead. Betsy, David and Julian would be conveyed to the city in a carriage that would travel with the gold escort, 
which was under the armed guard of police against bushrangers. Also in the carriage would be a Chinese man named DG. The day after their trial, he'd been convicted in court of murdering a shopkeeper. Chief Justice Stahl had had to sentence him to death too, though his honour wasn't convinced that this man deserved the extreme punishment, particularly as all the evidence had been circumstantial. The gold escort trip to Melbourne through rough country would take days. Betsy, David and Julian's trial at Beechworth had been a big newspaper story around Australia, not least because there was now a very good chance that Victoria would for the first time hang a woman. Delivering a member of the fairer sex to such a fate was not something to be done lightly. But if any woman deserved to go to the gallows, it was Betsy Scott. Not just for what she'd done, but for what she'd made two men do on her behalf. An evil woman who destroys men by leading them into temptation is a recurring religious, mythological, artistic and literary theme. It dates right back to Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden. But the modern notion of what we understand as a femme fatale came into its own in romantic literature during the few decades before the murder at Devil's River. A notable example was John Keats' 1819 poem, La Belle Dame Sans Merci, which translates to The Beautiful Lady Without Mercy. Betsy Scott fit this mould to a T, and the newspapers, in the main, embraced it. The Ages article about the trial was headlined, A Husband Shot at the Instigation of His Wife. After Betsy's conviction, some newspapers felt free to be as vicious as they liked without fear of being called ungentlemanly. Betsy was no longer a woman. She was, as they'd say repeatedly, unsexed. The Ovens and Murray Advertiser, whose editor's later femme fatale description of Betsy we heard last instalment, would put into print all sorts of speculation and opinion. Granted, this scuttlebutt could no longer prejudice a jury, but such reports might influence the executive, who would be considering the case while the prisoners were in transit. Their deliberations would decide whether the death sentences would be upheld. Here's what the Ovens and Murray advertiser had to say about the departure of the prisoners from Beechworth in the Gold Escort. Quote, the woman, if she deserves the name, the wife of the murdered man, treated the matter with the utmost nonchalance. She herself arranged the position of a chair that was brought for her to use in getting into the escort wagon, and appeared as cool and collected as though she was starting on a pleasure excursion. Strip away the tone, and what they're describing is Betsy placing a stool for herself to step up into the coach. The fact that she did this, that she didn't rely on a man to do it for her, that she wasn't weeping or fainting, was taken as an indication of her callous indifference. This tone persists in some modern crime reporting too, particularly when it comes to women who are perceived, usually by men, as not seeming sufficiently remorseful, emotional or frightened. But there was worse. The Ovens and Murray advertiser told readers, We understand that she is enceinte. I had to look this up. It's the archaic French word for pregnant. The paper continued, and from that cause we presume her confidence and coolness arose, as it is rarely, if ever, the case that a woman sentenced to death under such circumstances is executed after the birth of the child, the sentence being generally commuted to imprisonment. 
This made Betsy seem immensely wicked. She'd been in custody for six months. It wasn't like she was carrying her dead husband's baby. She'd been carrying on behind bars. Whoever had fathered the bastard, her purpose had been clear, to fall pregnant and cheat the hangman. The Ovens and Murray advertiser continued that there was, quote, also medical evidence to show that she is not enceinte. So either way, Betsy was damnable, as a whore or as a liar who'd go to any lengths to save her own life. To be clear, there is nothing in the official record about a pregnancy or about her claiming to be pregnant. Not to say that it didn't happen, just that it may only have been speculation. The Ovens and Murray advertiser ran with it, contemplating Betsy's hideous ploy working. Quote, If the female monster is permitted to escape the last dread penalty of the law, in common justice, her two co-partners in guilt should be similarly dealt with, as there cannot be the slightest doubt entertained that she was the originator and instigator of the foul deed. But here the paper sounded a curious note, quote, The young man Gedge persists in stating that no improper intimacy ever took place between him and the woman. If that was true, you had to wonder, then why had David Gedge followed her orders? Was it perhaps on the promise of sex? But there's no evidence of this in the official trial transcript, at least the one that would be presented to the executive as found in the Public Records Office of Victoria. In this document, David had made no claim that he'd acted on Betsy's instructions. This would appear to have come out in the trial, but it wasn't part of his initial confession as tendered. What didn't appear in the newspaper commentary, but what deserved consideration, was a counter-theory. David and Julian had murdered Bob, for whatever reason, and their suicide frame-up which they'd got Betsy believing, had unravelled almost immediately under the perceptive gaze of Mr. Ellis. David and Julian had turned on each other in their confessions, but no matter the motive, in confessing murder, they were putting nooses around their necks. But if they claimed that Betsy was in on it, was behind it, that might save them. She would likely be spared. Victoria had never hanged a woman, if the executive spared her, it'd have to spare them. Just a theory, but one that would not be printed in the newspapers. What was printed was that David Gedge and Julian Cross were playing their part in the legal, social and religious ritual and drama that comprised capital punishment in colonial Australia. If everything went the way it was supposed to, convicted killers would confess their guilt, express their remorse, make their peace with God, and go to the gallows, saying they deserve death, but look forward to eternal life with God. As the Ovens and Murray advertiser reported, both David and Julian had, quote, made a general acknowledgement to Mr. Castio, the governor of the jail, and to the Reverend J.K. Macmillan, the clergyman in attendance, that their sentence was just. Their admissions were reported more specifically as they were about to depart Beechworth Jail in that coach. Quote, Gedge and Cross, who were both in irons, stated to the Reverend J.K. Macmillan and Dr. Ballantyne, the clergyman in attendance, that their sentence was just and that they were guilty in the sight of God and man, but that it was Mrs. Scott who actually perpetrated the deed. Actually perpetrated the deed. 
Perhaps it was misreporting and they'd said instigated or something similar. If not, then their stories had changed again, making it sound like Betsy had pulled the trigger. What also became part of the newspaper narrative was that Betsy had supposedly tried to get Julian to buy laudanum so she could poison her husband. That she'd given Julian two tumblers of brandy, put the gun in his hand repeatedly, made him drunk, broken down his resistance and eventually got him to shoot her husband. These claims were not in the official transcript presented to the Executive Council for their consideration. But there's every chance that council members knew of them and that they may have influenced their perceptions of Betsy. Post-verdict, Betsy's story hadn't changed. The Ovens and Murray advertiser told readers, quote, The female prisoner still persists in maintaining her own innocence. But it wouldn't matter because, as the newspaper said, quote, From some expressions dropped by his honour the Chief Justice since the trial, it is probable that she will be hanged in Melbourne. The paper noted, quote, the father and mother of the prisoner Gedge, who are most respectable people, have drawn up a petition to the executive in his favour. A petition has also been drawn up in Mansfield in favour of the prisoner Scott. Usually these petitions, signed by dozens or even hundreds or thousands of people, are found in the public records of Victoria capital case files. This time, they're not. Presumably, they were lost though it would have been interesting to see how many people had signed for Betsy and who they were. The executive received the capital case file, which was dated the 29th of October, on the 2nd of November. The case of the Chinese man, DG, would also be considered by the council. Chief Justice Stahl was there to explain and answer any questions the executive might have. As I've said, the folder contains the handwritten transcripts of prosecution evidence given at trial. It does not contain defence arguments, but it really didn't need to. The executive wasn't retrying the case. Its members were deciding whether there was any reason at all to spare the lives of Betsy, David and Julian. To commute their sentences so they spent the rest of their lives in prison. To make their decision, the executive needed to know as much as they could about the condemned before their convictions, to assess their characters. Sergeant Moore, who'd been present when Betsy and David were arrested at Devil's River, had written a summary of what was known of the prisoners' backgrounds. These mini-biographies were based on what they'd said themselves in custody at Mansfield and what the police's investigations had revealed. David Gedge's birth in London, his emigration with his family to Australia, and his work for various farmers in the district was described. His character was said to be beyond reproach, until he suddenly became party to a murder. This, combined with his family's vocal agitations that he'd been led astray by that woman, meant that his case for clemency might have some merit. But not so Julian Cross. The capital case file detailed his background, his Portuguese father and Chinese mother, his time spent sailing the seas, and his more recent alleged history in Victoria as a treacherous, vindictive character known to wield a knife. The file also contained a claim by the police that Julian had, while in custody, spontaneously confessed to another murder. Julian had supposedly killed his own brother because they were both keen on the same girl. 
but when questioned further, the police said he'd refused to confirm this story or give any more information. There was nothing in Julian Cross's appraisal that would suggest the executive ought to be merciful. As for Betsy, her case was crucial. What the executive decided about her, they were, in effect, deciding about David Gedge and Julian Cross. Was there anything in the police's description of Betsy that might move their hearts? Quote, Nothing is absolutely known against her previous character, but her husband was always jealous of her. The very wording of this made it seem that, while there was nothing known against her, her husband had reason to be jealous, that Betsy was a fallen woman. The appraisal continued. When young, she was very pretty, and it is believed that she was unfortunate through the inducements and examples of her mother and sisters. This would be the mother who married her off at the age of 13, just as she'd married off Betsy's young sisters. Perhaps the executive could read into this that Betsy, like David, had been led into temptation, that it was the sad portrait of a girl gone wrong. Yet Betsy was a woman now. So did she feel remorse, like David did? Did she admit guilt, like David did? The police's appraisal continued, quote, The prisoner was in the hands of the Mansfield police nearly a month, and during that time she exhibited the utmost levity and apparent indifference to the death of her husband and to her own position. She only appeared to be depressed in spirits but once, and that was on the morning that the prisoner Gedge left for Beechworth Jail. She watched his departure and then had a long and hearty cry. If this was true, it was more evidence that Betsy had been having an affair with the young lad she'd ordered to murder her husband. Sergeant Moore's damning description went on, quote, She appeared to be very fond of any sly allusion to, or any joke on, obscene topics, and if encouraged, her conversation was more like that of a common streetwalker than of a proper woman. She would also sometimes drink beyond the bounds of sobriety. This begged a few questions. He'd said, if encouraged, her conversation was more like that of a common streetwalker. Who was doing the encouraging here? Was it the police? Were they getting her laughing and joking and then reporting it as evidence of her low moral character? The same went for her drinking. Quote, she would also sometimes drink beyond the bounds of sobriety. It seemed evident they were talking about Betsy as she behaved in the Mansfield lockup before she was transferred to Beechworth Jail. Who had been giving her this alcohol? Was it the same Sergeant Moore who now reported it as evidence against her? Did the executive look at these statements from those perspectives? Or did they simply see what was on the page? That if they spared her now, they were sparing a drunken, murderous adulteress who thought killing her husband was a joke on par with whorish obscenities. Remember, behind the scenes, supposedly, though not in the official record, Betsy had been examined to see if she was pregnant after claiming such. Usually, for the sake of decency, this was done by a panel of mothers, the one instance in the colonial justice system where women could form a jury. As The Age reported, we may mention that the woman Scott has been examined and her statement that she was enceinte found to be false. There is therefore, we believe, no doubt but that the extreme penalty of the law will be enforced in her case. 
The gold escort delivered Betsy, David, Julian and the Chinese man DG to Melbourne jail at 1.30pm on the 4th of November 1863. The Chinese man was met with good news. The executive, under the guidance of Chief Justice Stahl, had reprieved him. It was reported there was no moral doubt as to his complicity in the murder, but that the evidence against him had been circumstantial. His sentence had thus been commuted to life in prison, the first three years to be spent in chains. Betsy, David and Julian were placed in separate cells on the ground floor of Melbourne Jail, not far from the gallows. Three hours after they arrived, as afternoon deepened towards evening, a letter arrived from the Chief Secretary for the Governor of the Jail, Mr Wintle. The Executive Council, after careful deliberation, had made its decision. Betsy Scott, David Gedge and Julian Cross were to hang next Wednesday, the 11th of the 11th, unless, as the Herald reported, quote, the Governor at the 11th hour should exercise his prerogative. The trio had less than a week to live. Now they were in Melbourne jail, Betsy was visited daily by her sisters. Despite their early struggles, they'd come good and were described in the papers as being respectable women. One had a dairy and milk wash in Burke Street, not far from Melbourne jail. David Gedge's heartbroken mother also visited daily. She told him to hold out hope. She and the family and friends were collecting signatures for a petition to the governor. Julian Cross, who'd only come to the colony a year earlier, had no one outside of the clergyman to console him. The trio was visited frequently by men of the cloth, Church of England ministers for Betsy and David, and a Roman Catholic priest for Julian. In these cases, religious men considered their duty was to convince the condemned not to hold out hope of earthly redemption, to focus all their efforts and energies on eternal salvation. Their advice would include not to make any sort of speech from the scaffold. Melbourne's The Herald newspaper did want mercy for Betsy Scott, not for her sake, but for the sake of society and for womanhood in general. Quote, The crime of which they have been convicted was attended with no extenuating circumstances, and we are no humanitarians to wish to step between murderers and their fate. But still, there is something unusually terrible in condemning a woman, even though she be unsexed by her crimes, to a sudden and shameful death. The newspaper said it would be historic in the worst way. Quote, Hitherto, we have been spared this horror in Victoria. Our gallows has never yet claimed a female victim. The Herald made its point thus. We shall rejoice and we feel certain that the people of this colony, and here it quoted the poet Thomas Hood, men with sisters dear, men with mothers and wives, will join us. Should the executive resolve to temper justice with mercy and commute the sentence passed upon this wretched creature to one not less dreadful to her, but less shocking to the women of Victoria. In other words, lock her up and throw away the key, if only to spare our mothers, wives, sisters and daughters the horror of a woman hanged. While David Gedge's family continued in its agitations on his behalf, Betsy's barrister, George Milner Stephen, saw to it that his defence arguments, not previously reported in detail in the press, finally saw print. 
His arguments, he said, had only been bolstered by the recent revelation that David Gedge had owed Bob Scott £26, a substantial sum of money, and that this had been his motive for murder. Mr Stevens' eight reasons to spare Betsy were not on account of her youth or her gender. She should not be hanged because she was innocent, because the government had not proved its case beyond a reasonable doubt. Mr. Stephen listed the reasons. Quote, 1. Another prisoner confesses himself the murderer. This was undoubtedly true. Julian had confessed to pulling the trigger, and David Gedge had confessed to his role in the crime. Their allegations against Betsy were what had resulted in her conviction. There was no direct proof against her. Mr. Stephen's second reason, quote, The deceased was her husband and the father of two forlorn children. To which we can add that Mrs. Ellis said although Betsy had confided that Bob was a jealous and controlling man she had been forced to marry, Betsy had said nothing to disrespect him. So, while Betsy wouldn't speak against Bob, she'd conspired cold-bloodedly to organise his murder? Did that really make sense? On that score, point three, quote, The last evening of his life, she was seen by the female witness for a long time tenderly and affectionately rubbing his side to relieve the agony arising from a supposed affliction of the heart and finding his feet cold, probably from approaching dissolution, as he himself thought, she requested the witness to assist in rubbing his feet to impart warmth. Why had Betsy spent the past two weeks caring for Bob if she wanted him dead? Why continue doing it that very night if it looked like he was going to die? Couldn't she save herself the trouble of a murder plot by backing away and letting nature take its course? That she had given her all to make him well was found in point four, quote, She was obviously exhausted, as she alleged, with sitting up during several nights and nursing him, and she requested to relieve her by sitting up that night with her husband, thereby proving incontrovertibly that she, at least, had not planned his murder. It was another good point. Mrs. Ellis had testified that Betsy had originally asked her to sit up all night with her husband. Why do this if you'd already planned to have him shot that night? And was Betsy even up to all this supposedly calculated conspiring? Point five, quote, The same evening she laid down exhausted on the floor by his bedside while the witness washed some clothes for her. Point six, she knew and believed that her husband was rapidly dying, and therefore, if she had desired to get rid of him, which all her tender officers disproved, by leaving him to the course of nature, her supposed wishes would have been speedily gratified, and murder was not necessary. If we were to suppose that Betsy had decided Bob wasn't dying quick enough, then why plan his murder for the night when Mr. and Mrs. Ellis were just outside? Wouldn't it have been far easier to stage his suicide when they'd left? After all, they could have easily testified that Bob was suffering agonies the last time they saw him alive. Mr. Stephen's seventh point, quote, Had she indeed witnessed the murder involuntarily and used every exertion to save his life, no one was present to prove it, and her making the assertion would not be accepted as the truth. However, whether perfectly innocent or thoroughly guilty, the facts proved might be the same. Another good argument. The very few objective facts proved neither innocence nor guilt. The eighth point, quote, Finally, 
One wretched man has confessed himself the murderer, and if he suffers the extreme penalty of the law, his majesty will be amply vindicated, and society at large will be better satisfied than if an unhappy female, the mother of a family, against whom hitherto not the slightest crime or misconduct has ever been charged, and who in the present case is only convicted on the most inconclusive evidence, should die, for all we have ever known innocently upon the scaffold. It was possible that David Gedge had enlisted Julian Scott to murder Bob Scott, and £26 had been the motive. Make it seem like suicide, and maybe no one would be the wiser. It was possible Betsy knew nothing about it, except what David had told her, which was her husband was in the bedroom and that he'd shot himself with the pistol a lie that she'd then repeated innocently to Mr. and Mrs. Ellis in those first few moments. Then David and Julian had implicated her in the hope it had saved them. Of course, it was possible that David and Julian were telling the truth, and that she'd been behind it all, the femme fatale, as the jury, the judge and the executive had believed. But why murder a dying husband? She could simply have waited or she could have sped his death by slacking off on the care after the Ellises had departed. She could have given him too much brandy, or smothered him with a pillow. No one would have questioned his death in bed at all. If an inquest was even held, the Ellises would have testified that Bob had been close to death's door the last time they saw him. Surely these options for Betsy were easier and safer than a complicated murder plot involving two men and a faked suicide. What Betsy didn't say is also intriguing. If she'd ordered Julian to kill so that she could be with David, why hadn't she simply corroborated David's story when interviewed by Detective Edwards? She could have said that Julian was lying to save his skin and that she and David had nothing to do with it. She could have claimed that David had said to her she had to say it was suicide by pistol to Mr. Ellis because he, David, had been threatened by Julian and she believed that threat might yet be carried out. Instead, Betsy's story to the police had not changed from the start. She said she'd been out of the shanty when the shot was fired. She didn't know what had happened. Was Betsy Scott innocent? It's not possible to conclude that. Was there reasonable doubt about her guilt? It's hard to conclude anything else. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Some, like the Herald, wanted clemency. But others, such as the leader, said mercy would undermine capital punishment as a deterrent. Quote, it is certainly an unpleasant thing to advocate the hanging of a woman, but if she, by her conduct, unsexes herself and places herself beyond the pale of human sympathy, she must expect the results. If the life of the woman Scott be spared, it would be simply murder to execute either of her accomplices. It was ironic that this argument was exactly what Chief Justice Stahl had warned the jury against, conflating the cases. The executive could have spared Betsy and let the law stand for David and Julian, but then they would have risked being hypocrites. The leader went on. 
It was she who planned the brutal deed, the murder of her own husband, and it was at her instigation that her willing tools deprived the unfortunate man of his life. There is not one extenuating circumstance in the whole case, and if, in such an instance, capital punishment is not carried out, then it better be abolished altogether. The uncertainty of a punishment robs it of half its terrors, and it becomes almost useless as a means of preventing crime. This was a common argument all through the history of capital punishment in Australia and elsewhere. Whenever people were spared in notorious cases, it would be argued that previous executions had been tantamount to judicial murder, particularly if those who'd been hanged had not been convicted of killing their fellow man. Spare Betsy, and thus David and Julian, and how could Victoria ever hang another murderer again? On the 8th of November, there was only one man in the colony who could save their lives. The Governor, Sir Charles Henry Darling. Governor Darling had been in the job for just two months. He'd be a fool to stick his neck out to save the necks of three convicted murderers. The Argus reported the countdown on the 9th of November. Quote, For the three prisoners lying under sentence of death at the Melbourne jail, time is now rapidly narrowing but two more days and nights and the fatal last morning will have arrived for them. It went on. The prisoners, however, all three, show an equanimity of demeanour and a cheerfulness that seem to arise rather from hope of a reprieve than from resignation to their fate. Yet that resignation wasn't quite complete. Quote, it appears that they have not ceased to cling to the lingering hope that their lives will yet be spared. As for Betsy, quote, she still believes that her sex will save her from undergoing the extreme punishment of the law. While the Ovens and Murray advertiser had been quite comfortable calling Betsy a female monster, and the police had described her as having the mouth and demeanour of a streetwalker, the Argus had come to a different conclusion based on different information. Quote, the female is described as intelligent in conversation, of vivacious disposition, as being fairly educated and well-informed. On the evening of the 10th of November, the Reverend Mr. Stoddart met with the Governor to ask for the sentences to be commuted. His Excellency declined. The prisoners should not hold out any hope on the morrow. That night, David's heartbroken mother said her goodbyes. Betsy was visited by her sisters, who would, if they could, take care of her two boys. Otherwise, the children would have to go into state care. The next morning, all the newspapers carried the information that the trio was to be hanged, as usual, at 10 o'clock in Melbourne Jail. But interest was so great in this first execution of a woman in Victoria, that the colony's long-serving sheriff, Claude Ferry secretly moved the time forward by half an hour. He hoped that this would make crowd scenes less likely. While the history books tell us that by 1863, Victorian hangings had been carried out under the Private Executions Act for nearly a decade, meaning they were no longer witnessed by thousands of members of the public, the reality was that they weren't private at all. The Private Executions Act stipulated, among other things, that executions be carried out inside the walls of a prison and that a jury hold an inquest to formally declare the cause of death. 
So, in addition to the officials present, there would be 12 citizens to witness the hanging. But the Act also allowed the Sheriff to admit members of the general public as he saw fit. Sheriff Claude Ferry was in the habit of letting in dozens of well-connected, morbidly curious people. There was never a shortage of people who wanted to see a hanging. Watching a woman swing? That was a story you'd dine out on for the rest of your life. Reports would vary, but in addition to the jail's governor and guards, the doctors and police officers, the jury members and newspaper reporters, there were anywhere between 30 and 60 people let in to this private execution by Claude Ferry. When the doors opened early, there was an unseemly rush to get through the prison to the jail corridor in time for the execution. A larger crowd, perhaps as many as 200 people, gathered outside the jail walls even though they had no hope of seeing anything. What they wanted was to be close to the death, and also to get the first gossip from anyone leaving. The condemned trio reportedly slept well and were attended by the clergyman in the morning. Their exhortations to repentance were received by David and Julian. Betsy apparently appeared indifferent. As the Herald reported, quote, Elizabeth Scott continued to the last to protest but not vehemently, her innocence. It did not seem, so far as her demeanour could be taken as an index, that the counsels and teachings of her spiritual advisers had made any impression on her hardened feelings. The reporters knew this, or thought they did, because they were able to watch the prisoners come out of the cells. Their irons had been struck off, and now the hangman, the one-eyed William Bamford, who'd been in the job for five years, was to tie their arms behind their backs. This pinioning was to stop them struggling and to prevent their dying bodies from grabbing at the ropes around their necks. In 1863, hanging was still very much a make-it-up-as-you-go method of execution. A broken neck, a quick, clean death, this was the goal. But it was only achieved by luck. William Bamford was a drunken criminal. He had no clear scientific idea about how long ropes had to be and how far bodies needed to drop. He had no idea about the best placement of the knot, and neither did his bosses, the governor of the jail, Mr. Wintle, and the sheriff, Claude Ferry. Hangings were often hideously botched, with victims struggling for minutes before they were finally still. William Bamford had presided over three of these in a row back in 1858, leading to brief outrage and criticism of Sheriff Ferry before the whole thing died down again and the hit-and-miss business of hanging resumed. An important component of newspaper reporting on hanging was describing how prisoners went to their deaths. Were they frightened or fearless? Were they repentant or did they rage against society? Did they stride firmly or did they need to be helped or even pushed up the steps to the scaffold? A triple hanging was a rare novelty. That one of the victims was a woman had never happened before in the colony. The reporters paid close attention as the trio were brought from their cells. Julian Cross was first. William Bamford pinioned him and placed the rolled up white cap atop his head. Julian Cross was visibly frightened. David Gedge was next. He burst into tears, and he'd keep on crying. Then, Betsy Scott walked out. Here's the age. Quote, 
When the woman was brought out, an exclamation of surprise broke from the bystanders that one so young and so amiable in aspect should have been the prime mover in so horrible a deed. Here's the herald. When Elizabeth Scott came from her cell, everyone was struck with the bold, yet not exactly defiant aspect of her countenance. There was no trembling of the limbs, no paleness of cheek or lip, no quiver of the eye, and indeed no indication that she was filled with dread of the hangman's touch, as any woman not altogether of adamantine heart might be expected to be. She seemed entirely unsexed, and in point of nerve, far excelled her fellows. Was Betsy of adamantine heart, unbreakable? Or was it that she alone felt she had nothing to fear from God? If she was innocent, as she'd maintained all along, then she was about to go to heaven. The Herald went on, quote, She was dressed in black and held a white cambric handkerchief in her right hand, her hair also being neatly arranged. She offered no opposition to the executioner during the process of pinioning and the placing on of the white cap, but, on the contrary, seemed to assist him by posing herself properly. The procession, with the jail chaplain reading part of the burial service and an attendant holding a cross, walked a short distance from the condemned cells to the scaffold. The three prisoners climbed the narrow stairs and stood on the platform two feet apart beneath the beam with its three nooses. Julian was at the far end, David in the middle, then Betsy. The hangman placed the nooses and lowered the white caps. Betsy spoke. David, will you not clear my name? I'm wholly innocent of this crime. David Gedge was either too preoccupied with his own tearful feelings or was simply unwilling to answer. Or maybe he was about to speak when the hangman pulled the bolt. The trio fell five feet. Here's the Ballarat Star. All three culprits were launched into eternity at the same moment, the crash of the falling drop sending a shudder through those who could see little excepting the extremities of the victims of the law. That reporter might have been too far back to see much, but others said unanimously that death was nearly instantaneous. There appeared to be very little twitching in any of the bodies. When the three had hung for an hour, as the law dictated, Hangman William Bamford cut them down and laid them on a trestle table with the ropes coiled beneath their heads. All part of the service, for which he was paid £5 per victim on a freelance basis. Now the government surgeon, Dr Richard Yule, would lead the jury in the inspection of the bodies, confirming the condemned had died by hanging, as had been ordered by the law. But Bamford had nearly botched this job too. When Betsy's cap was lifted, she was all but decapitated, her once lovely face all swollen and purple. In her hand, she still held that white handkerchief. In its reporting, the Herald reiterated that Julian Cross had confessed, but said it was puzzled why he'd committed the crime given he had, quote, no enmity against his master, it is difficult to understand the influence which the woman exercised over him and which led him to fire the fatal shot. Cross unreservedly admitted his guilt, but averred that he had been previously made drunk by the woman. The paper added new colour now about David Gedge. Quote, 
it is said that having at one time broken his leg, he was attended carefully by Mrs. Scott, between whom and himself a criminal passion sprung up. The youth became her paramour, and the powerful influence which she gained over him, commencing in dishonour, has terminated by the death of both upon the scaffold. Gedge acknowledged his participation in the murder and admitted the justice of his sentence. But not Betsy. She had gone to her death, protesting her innocence, asking at the very last that David Gedge clear her name. This was characterised by the newspapers as Betsy dying with a lie upon her lips. The Herald thought it was just. Quote, Let us trust that her fate and that of her accomplices may long remain in the memory of the rising generation of this colony as a warning against the abandonment of principle and the encouragement of sinful desires. It was that old, old justification. Hanging people prevented crime. Yet, in the next ten years, William Bamford would hang another three dozen people in Victoria. His successors would take up the ropes and hang many more. It wouldn't be until 1894 that another woman was to go to the gallows in Victoria. This time around, the hangman cut his own throat rather than carry out the execution. But his assistant wasn't so squeamish. While hanging Betsy Scott had been horrible, there was also money to be made from her death. Professor So here, the phrenologist who ran the waxworks on Burke Street, had made plenty of coin from his Chamber of Horrors, which featured figures whose faces were made from the death masks of executed criminals. But he wasn't able to take Betsy's or David's. This may have been because they didn't give their consent one measure of control over their bodies that the prisoners were allowed. But it may have been simply, at least in Betsy's case, because she was too disfigured. Professor Sohir wasn't to be deterred. As the Herald would report on the 19th of November, quote, The Chamber of Horrors at Sohir's Waxworks exhibition has recently received the addition of models of Cross, Gedge and Elizabeth Scott, who were recently executed for the Jamison murder. The portrait of Cross is lifelike, and considering that the artist was not allowed to take casts of the heads of Scott and Gedge, the work is most creditable. Mr. Sohir informed us that some of the relations of the woman Scott have seen the figure, and pronounce it to be an excellent representation of the wretched woman. I'm hoping that this podcast is a better representation of Betsy Scott. You have to hope that the relatives who saw Betsy Scott's waxwork figure did not include her two young sons. If you're like me, then you will have wondered what became of them. John and Thomas were about seven and four when their mother was hanged on the 11th of the 11th, 1863. Thomas, sadly, would only live till he was 20. Like his father, he was overfond of a drink, and in 1879, riding a horse while drunk at Lilydale, he kicked and hit the animal, which bucked, threw him off, and stomped on his skull. At least, that was the accidental death verdict given at the inquest, which was conducted by Dr. Richard Yule. As for John Scott, he had a longer life. Given his age when his mother was hanged, he may have known what was going on though he may also have been shielded from the truth. 
Surely later, given that he kept his name, he learned what had happened to his mother, that she'd been executed for the murder of his father on the 11th of the 11th, 1863. If he had any sort of education, John would have been taught that Victoria's separation, that it was to be its own colony, had first been announced on the 11th of the 11th, 1850. John likely remembered both of these things on the 11th of the 11th, 1880, when he was 24 and Ned Kelly went to the noose in Melbourne jail. John lived long enough to be 62 on the 11th of the 11th, 1918, when the Great War ended. John was in his 80th year when he passed away. I was astounded when I saw the date of his passing at Ancestry.com.au and then confirmed this in Melbourne newspaper death notices. The 11th of the 11th, 1936. The 73rd anniversary of the execution of his mother, Betsy Scott. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. This episode, Murder at Devil's River, grew out of research that I did for my book, Hanging Ned Kelly. Obviously, I couldn't fit Betsy Scott's story into that, so I'm glad I was able to tell it here. But if you'd like to know more about horrible characters such as Hangman William Bamford and his predecessors and successors, along with the likes of Sheriff Claude Ferry and the phrenologist waxworks operator Professor Philemon Sohir, then Hanging Ned Kelly is out now in paperback. It's $20.35 on Booktopia, and if you order now, you'll get it in time for Christmas. Hanging Ned Kelly is also available as a Kindle ebook for 15 bucks. I'll be back with a new episode very soon. In the meantime, please do think about submitting a question for David Hunt for the Book Club episode coming up in the new year. You can send me a question via email, forgottenaustraliapodcast at gmail.com, or by using SpeakPipe which allows you to record and send short audio messages. Find it at speakpipe.com forward slash Forgotten Australia and that link and email address are both in your show notes along with links to Patreon and Apple should you decide to become a supporter of Forgotten Australia. As always, thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.